You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. In this first episode of 2020, we are going to be talking about the present and future of air travel. On the one hand, these are exciting times for aviation. The airline industry is enjoying an all-too-rare period of healthy profits, and there is very real potential in new modes of air travel ranging from unmanned air taxis to next-generation supersonic planes. And yet, there is increasing awareness among passengers and policymakers that flying is a carbon-intensive mode of transportation. The concept of flickskam, roughly translated from the Swedish as flight shame, is a topic of conversation in the media and in boardrooms alike. To discuss all this and more, I caught up with a couple of commercial pilots turned McKinsey partners. Alex Dichter is American, now based in London. Robin Riedel is German, now based in San Francisco. They both work extensively with airlines and, like many of us, fly extensively for work. So, uh, Alex and Robin, thank you for being here and welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Great to be here. So let's uh, start with a little bit of industry economics. Uh, This industry is famous, has been famous over the years for for destroying value for, for investors, but the last few years have been better. So, Alex, just tell us what's changed. Sure. We are indeed about to finish the fifth year of consecutive profitability in the airline industry, depending on how you measure it. The industry's made a small economic profit in each of the last five years. And certainly, no matter how you measure it, it's been the most profitable five-year period in 80 years of industry history. Some of that, to be clear, is good luck. We've had relatively robust GDP growth across the world, and certainly in the U.S. over that period. Fuel prices have been lower than average. But I do think that there are some things that the airline industry has figured out uh, that are working better. Chief among them would be what the industry refers to as ancillary revenues. So to illustrate the point, in a typical year over the last five years, the industry as a whole has made an economic profit of, let's say, $35 billion. In any of those same years, the global sales of ancillary revenues, seat assignments, bag fees, credit card fees, has been north of $50 billion. And so, in another word, you could say that all of the industry profit is coming from ancillaries. Of course, it's a bit more complicated than that, but it is a big structural change, and it's really helping the industry. So it's interesting. It's like the biggest innovation in the airline industry over the last 10 years or so actually has been a a revenue management, a pricing innovation, as opposed to fancy new aircraft. I don't want to discount the impact of fancy new aircraft. Uh, Certainly as a pilot, those are very important to me. But yes, it's a big structural change. And by the way, it's one that the airline industry didn't invent. It used to be that we all paid for our checking accounts. Today, the checking account tends to be free, and we pay a little bit extra for physical checks, a little bit extra for this, a little bit extra for that. It's true in telecoms. It's true in many other industries. And what the industry is doing is responding to human behavior. People are less responsive to changes in these fees than they are to changes in the price of the ticket. And so when the price of the ticket goes up by a dollar or two, airlines see an immediate effect in their demand. When we change the seat assignment fee from six to seven or seven to eight dollars, 
people may buy fewer seat assignments, but they don't buy fewer tickets. And so from an industry structure standpoint, that's probably a healthier way of building revenue than simply bundling everything into the ticket price. I think what Alex said is absolutely right. And then I would add to that that operationally, we've just you know, seen massive progress. And so we're using aircraft a lot more than they have in the past. It's spreading the cost of those aircraft. Uh, at the same time, crews are much more productive than they have been in the past. And so all kinds of different cost items, we found ways over the last decade or so to significantly reduce. So this is where I'm going to put my traveler hat on. Yeah. You know, is there a sense then, Robin, that this, this sort of little profitable spell for the industry has been somewhat, you know, passengers have paid for it. It feels like I do have to pay for a lot of things I never used to have to pay for. Plus, I have crowded airports, crowded planes. I think the traveler experience doesn't feel like a great one at the moment. It's, it's an interesting observation. Uh, I do think if you look at the data, it would tell a, a bit of a different story, a bit of more nuanced story. I think there's lots of positives that are better today than they were before. But I think on the one hand, you have more choice. So you say things are more crowded, you're being paying for more things, but it's actually your choice to do so. And if you want the fantastic experience, you can pay for that and actually get it. You can get lifelet seats, which 20 years ago you couldn't. Uh, you can get great airport lounges, you can get fast track, you know, you can even get private terminals in, in certain places. So all of that is available. Now, overall, also costs have come down. So if you could look at the real cost of air travel over the years, this is one of the only industries in the world where prices continuously go down and down and down, right? And so today, access to air travel is a multifold of that that we had even 10 or 20 years ago, simply because, you know, airlines have figured out how to lower cost and lower cost over time. And so that provides access to people. Now, on top of that, beyond the choice and beyond some of the innovation we're seeing, you know, there's a couple of, of simple things that have just gotten better. So one is on-time performance. So we're so much better today in understanding weather patterns, understanding equipment, having much more reliable equipment. So while it might sometimes feel like you're stuck in the airport longer than in the past, the facts would actually show a different story. And look, I mean, Robin pointed out the benefits if you're interested in a premium experience, but quite frankly, even in economy class, the vast majority of the global airline fleet has either in-flight entertainment, often with hundreds of movies and TV shows to choose from. There's Wi-Fi on board, sometimes for a fee, sometimes not. There are extra legroom seats that you can pay for at reasonable prices that a lot of people choose to pay for and can afford. And I think a lot of people who refer to the golden age of air travel don't remember what flying was like in the 60s and 70s. I do. Uh, I did a lot of it. And flights were long, deadly boring. There was smoking on airplanes, which you know a lot of people don't like. Connections were very difficult. You always had to leave the terminal. Lots of waiting in lines. You couldn't do anything digitally. And so it, it wasn't quite the experience that people remember it to be. I think the one thing that is clearly more difficult today is that planes are full. And so the average load factor in the 1970s, the percentage of seats that had people in them, was around 60%, which meant that you were almost certainly, mathematically, going to get an empty seat next to you. Today, as anyone knows, getting an empty seat next to you on a typical flight is a real rarity. Yeah. And airports are more crowded as well, though, aren't they? I mean, there, there is a fact, isn't there, around the number of airports globally which are operating at or beyond capacity, and it's, it's high, right? Yeah, they're more crowded. Now, the way it really manifests itself is in security. And so you go back to the 60s or 70s, there was no security. So it was a much more open space. Today, once you're through security, the airport experience is actually generally pretty good, right? You have restaurants, you have 
retail shopping, you have lots of you know, seating space, you have light terminals with lots of window space. Uh, but security tends to be the, the number one pain point for passengers kind of going through yes. the experience. Yes, and I guess we cannot blame that on the airlines, but that's not something the airlines chose to put in place. Yeah. But you're quite right about the crowding point. If you go to multiple airline terminals, particularly in hub markets today during peak hours, you will find that it can be difficult to move around. In an industry that grows at, depending on the market, three to six percent per year, it's very clear that much of that infrastructure needs to be expanded and or replaced and needs to be expanded or replaced quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. Just go back to legroom, which is always a, a topic of much debate. Yeah. It feels to me like legroom is probably less than it used to be. Again, is, am I just looking at the past through rose-tinted spectacles? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, here, here are the facts. Let's go back into the 70s. I think in the 70s, the average pitch, this is a term that the industry uses for the number of inches or centimeters, if you choose, between one point on a seat and the exact same point on yep. the seat behind it or in front of it was about 34 inches. And today, if we looked at most network carriers, traditional airlines, it's probably in the neighborhood of 31 inches. So that's three inches fewer, which sounds like a lot. However, the seats are slimmer. And so a typical seat today is at least two inches slimmer than it was in the 1970s. And so the amount of space available for your legs is not dramatically different. So we might have lost an inch over We, we, we might have decades. lost an inch. Uh, I think we've certainly lost some recline. I think fuller airplanes mean that we're a little less socially comfortable reclining our seats. And that certainly had an impact. But let's be clear, this is also one of those things that people say they want, and yet to the industry's chagrin, there doesn't seem to be an enormous amount of evidence that people are willing to pay for it or shift their preferences because of it. So, so as consumers, we do not vote with our feet or our knees. Uh, unfortunately, that is true. And, and of course, I think the happy equilibrium we're coming to is many airlines are offering extra legroom seats. There are different names for these. Uh, there's, of course, premium economy, which is sold as a separate class. But in many cases, for anywhere from $20 to $100, you can buy an extra legroom seat, which has quite a bit of additional legroom. And so those who care can buy, and those who care less yeah. don't. Yeah. So the golden age of air travel is yeah, maybe not quite as true as, uh, as we like to remember. Let, let's just talk about the, this little golden period we've got of industry economics, though. Will it continue? The dynamics that have always led to unprofitability in this industry are fundamentally still there. This is still an industry that orders lots of airplanes when it's doing well. Those airplanes show up two to three years later, typically all at the same time, and that drives quite a bit of cyclicality. So just the cyclicality of capacity planning and the fact that every airline seems to order sort of in unison and then you get excess capacity is just a fundamental problem. Fundamental problem, the fact that uh, capacity is perishable, meaning when a seat leaves the gate, it's worth nothing. The marginal cost to put one more passenger on the airplane are very, very low, and that leads to a very strong incentive and a rational one to price below full cost when times are tough. And of course, in an industry where prices are relatively transparent, others respond uh, and you end up in a bit of a spiral. Yeah. I don't think any of that has fundamentally changed. I would maybe add that there is a few new storm clouds on the horizon here for the industry. And one of the bigger ones is going to be the question of sustainability. I think we're hearing lots of uh, 
public outcry about uh, you know the amount of carbon that that aviation puts in the air if you look at you know other emissions it's even higher than that and so uh, there's a real question whether demand is going to change because of uh, you know environmental concerns yes yes there's this word flixcom I'm not sure I'm probably butchering that. We'll get letters from, from Sweden. But, uh, you know, that's come up just in the last year or so and seems to have entered sort of popular culture. Is this actually a, a real topic of conversation? Again, at the capacity planning level, when people are looking at the demand curve and thinking about orders in, in airlines, are they actually taking this into account? They're starting to. I think this is a relatively new trend, right? We're seeing this over the last six months or so. Um, but our surveys have shown that about a third of the passengers are seriously considering flying less as a result of environmental concerns, which is something we haven't seen before at this, yeah. this number. We do see in certain markets, you know, in Scandinavia, we see pockets of demand actually falling off, especially domestic travel or short-term travel as a result of this. And we're seeing lots of lots of airlines starting to come out with very bold messages around what they want to do. Now, right now, a lot of this is focused on how do we increase fuel efficiency of our flying? How do we think about alternative fuels and certifying and getting them on board? And how do we think about uh, offsets? But to be honest, there's a lot more to be done. And, and there's a, a real challenge for the industry coming up, which is the airline industry, because of the density of uh, power that sits in fuel, it's very hard to go to other sources, right? So going to electric is incredibly hard for, for longer flights, uh, if not physically impossible. Just because of the, the density of batteries per unit of energy that, that they... That's exactly right. The problem is other industries can actually go with alternatives, right? So we're going to look at electric cars and we're going to see that ramp up. And so even though aviation might be 2 2.5% of carbon emissions today, aviation is rapidly growing compared to other modes and other polluters. And doesn't have as many alternatives. And so as the other modes put alternatives in, we will see the number of aviation come up quite quite a bit. So, yeah. you know, it's not crazy to say 10 years from now, aviation could be at 10%. So literally, it's currently at, that's an interesting data point. So currently at two, two and a half percent of global carbon emissions are of aviation. That's and, right. And probably on, on trends that will rise. How far it will rise, we don't know, but it could rise significantly. Yeah. I mean, presumably the industry is heavily incented to get more fuel efficient, right? Because jet fuel is a significant portion of costs. So what's the record of the industry so far? Beyond the cleaner fuel alternatives or biofuels, what's the industry doing to try and reduce its... It's something that's on everyone's mind. I think even if you weren't concerned about carbon, to your point, fuel is a large expense item and everyone's looking to use less of it. Uh, and certainly for some airlines, that means investing in new aircraft types that are significantly more fuel efficient. Some of the new generation aircraft are as much as 20% more efficient on a per passenger basis. But let's be clear, those airplanes are expensive. Uh, and if you look at the business case, um, most cases it's a clear business case, but it's close, meaning you save a lot on operating costs, but you pay back quite a bit of that in capital costs for the privilege of having a new aircraft. For some that makes sense, for others it makes less sense. Maybe to add a few things to that, I mean, the, the record of the industry on increasing fuel efficiency has actually been quite good. So on average we're seeing about a percent, percent and a half of uh, reduction per year, right, every year. 
and so the airlines are quite committed to that, to Alex's point, because it actually saves the money. I think one of the, the big players that, you know, we see an opportunity to do more is actually air traffic control here. And this is, in many cases, government-led. And so finding better ways to utilize the airspace, finding better ways to hand off, for example, in Europe between country-based um, air traffic control and allowing aircraft to take more direct flights, staying at altitude where they're more fuel efficient for longer, that, that could make a big difference. And I think there, there's a lot of opportunity left to really see some improvement on the fuel efficiency. Yeah. But anyway, to step back from it, even though surveys say that consumers are concerned about the environmental impact of flying, we still expect the industry to be growing at GDP plus for the next while. So if it bends the demand curve, it's going to be at the margin. Yeah, I think we do need to consider a scenario in which that changes. And I think the fact is that reasonably large portion of air travel today is discretionary. And so in Europe, I live in the UK, for a lot of people, the choice to go to Amsterdam or Spain for the weekend is an alternative to going to a football game and you know, going to the pub. And at not very different costs, yeah. right? It's, it's a way of spending your time. One of the airline CEOs uh, in Europe says that his biggest competitor is the sofa meaning that he's really trying to get people to get out of their homes and decide to travel. To do something. Uh, yeah. And that creates demand. Yeah. And I think the, the, the notion of flikskam, and again, I'm sure I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. I think you did better than I did. Uh, <laughs> is, is precisely to challenge people on that type of travel. And I think if that mindset becomes widespread, we could see a, a big change to demand. And certainly businesses too. While we as business people think that much of our travel is essential, I think it, we really looked at it with a sharp eye. We'd realized much of it could be replaced by video conferencing and, and phone calls. So I think that there is the possibility that we see large changes in mindsets towards travel, and that's something the industry needs to watch very closely. And to just build on that, I think the same is true for cargo. And if you look at air cargo today, a lot of it is perishable goods. Anywhere in the world, you can get you know, non-seasonal fruit and vegetables, you can get salmon from Chile, and you can get flowers, you, know, you can get just perishable goods from all over the world at any time. And I think consumers will, over time, smarten up to that and say, look... What is, what is the carbon footprint of my strawberries kind yeah, of thing? There you go. So, Alex, you, you mentioned a little earlier that, that current generation and next generation aircraft are more fuel efficient. Without getting too nerdy, but I'm interested, how is that actually being achieved? Look, in the simplest form, much of that benefit is coming through an increase in what engine manufacturers refer to as the bypass ratio. And so that's effectively the ratio of thrust that is created by the fan, that's the big disc out in front of the engine that you see spinning, it's effectively a propeller, versus the core of the engine. And the higher the bypass ratio, the more efficient the engine is up until a point. It's a very simple explanation of a very complicated topic. The issue is I think we're up against a threshold where dramatic increases in bypass ratio are, are not likely, and for two reasons. One is at some point the fan becomes so big that you can't manage it geometrically. And the second point is that the internal temperature of the engine goes up with higher bypass ratios. And so at some point we run into the limits of the ability for materials to sustain those temperatures. So we hit a sort of plateau of what you can get out of the, the technology. Yeah, at some point physics wins. And yet I think that the achievements of the engine manufacturers over the last 20 or 30 years have been remarkable. And I think engineers do wonderful things and, and we'll continue to see improvements. But I think the idea that we'll at some point see 
a, a kerosene-driven high-bypass ratio turbofan engine that burns 50% less fuel than we see today using the same basic concepts strikes most of us as unlikely. So then to build on that, I think the changes we would see kind of in that next generation out would be new airframe designs. And I think on the airframe side, we're getting more, you know, more aerodynamic wings, we're, we're building more aerodynamic fuselages overall, and we're building lighter materials. So a lot of carbon aircraft uh, yes, parts out there now. Yes, there's a lot of and things being that, built in, which is lighter than aluminium and so on. That's right. But we're still fundamentally still building the same kind of tube and wings design that we've been building for the last 80, 90 years. And so the, the question is to get to the next level of efficiency afterwards. We'll actually have to attack the design of the, the actual aircraft. And so there's designs out there like blended wing bodies, which have significantly uh, better lift performance and uh, lower drag that would achieve kind of the next step change. But it's not as easy as just taking an engine off like we do today and replacing it. And so as an industry, you know, where a new aircraft design will easily cost you more than $10 billion, something of that scale would probably cost you $30, $40 billion. We haven't gotten to the point yet to really invest in these new designs. And presumably, as, a, as an aircraft manufacturer, the big hairy bet that you have to make is, is when actually to take those kind of more futuristic designs, next generation or beyond next generation sure. platforms into production, right? Yeah, and I think there are multiple considerations. I think one is you don't want to kill the existing platform, which still has plenty of growth left in it, and you're, you're trying to pay down you know, that investment, which might be only five or ten years old. The second is you, you want to make those investments at points at which propulsion technology is, is ready for a step change. And last but not least, there is something to be said for managing the number of unknown unknowns in a design. The good news about reusing existing design features is that they're very well tested. We understand them. We understand how to make them safe or safer. We understand how to build them. The more unknowns there are, the more uncertainty you have in the development process. That leads to delays. It leads to manufacturing problems. Eventually, the industry tends to get there, but it can be a bumpy road. Notwithstanding all what we said, there's some very good ideas on the horizon that are actually coming to fruition um, in the smaller aircraft space. So we're looking at electric propulsion. And so the float plane companies in Vancouver have committed to going to fully electric uh, on their smaller aircraft. And so, you know, there we see a bunch of innovation coming out in electric propulsion, battery driven. And then kind of on the next horizon of range, you have a bunch of new designs that have distributed propulsion. So instead of having one or two big engines on the aircraft, you have dozens of smaller little propellers across the wing or across the fuselage, which have all kinds of aerodynamic benefits. And so while we won't see that anytime soon on the large airliners that we travel around most of the time, we will see this on the smaller regional aircraft. So the, the innovation tends to be on the shorter haul, basically. I wouldn't say that that's uh, been a pattern that innovation occurs on the shorter haul. I think the point is that when it comes to electric aircraft, the ability to do something that's economically useful on short-haul aircraft today is, is in sight in a way that it is not for long-range aircraft. And so we're not far away from being able to pack enough energy into a battery to be able to carry 10 passengers 20 or 30 kilometers. We're quite some way away from being able to carry 300 passengers, you know, 10,000 kilometers. Yep, yep. Just talk a little bit about the air taxi concept, which, uh, you know, it sounds incredibly futuristic. I mean, what do you think? Is that, is that realistic? It's a space I'm, I'm tremendously excited about. I mean, right now we track over 150 different manufacturers working on prototypes and business models around these vehicles. 150? Over 150 just from the manufacturing the vehicle side. If you think of the whole ecosystem, it's many, many more than that. Yeah. You will have to recharge these vehicles. You will need infrastructure to land them 
you know, need air traffic control when you think about the lower airspace and, and lots of vehicles, something that today doesn't exist. And all of that is being kind of spun up right now. And look, there is dozens of companies who have working prototypes that fly with and without passengers, with and without pilots today, and are proving that technology-wise, we're actually there. Now, at the same time, there's a lot of unlocks that need to happen to actually get there. And so air traffic control is one I mentioned. You know, the thought that we will have dozens of these zipping through a city, it's a problem that technically maybe we're close to solving or have solved. It's both exciting and scary. It is both exciting <laughs> and scary. Now, public perception is another one of those. I think in the Western world, our service suggests that people are not quite ready to get into an autonomous plastic bowl with, with rotors on it and, and fly around a city, or there's some skepticism around it. Now, in some of the emerging markets, there's less of a concern there. Yeah. Yes, I was going to ask, you know, you, you guys are both pilots. Would these things be pilotless or not? Because presumably the weight of the pilot, the economics of the pilot... That fundamentally changes the game. So let me give you a couple of the, the, the data points here. So by adding a pilot, we're about doubling the cost of flying on these vehicles. And that's because you you know, have to pay for the pilot for one, which isn't necessarily cheap, especially if you only share the cost over a couple of passengers versus a couple hundred on, on a big aircraft. Secondly, you're designing the aircraft for the pilot to be in there, right? And so you add an extra seat, that extra weight. And so you know, you're roughly doubling the cost um, of the trip. I think secondly, it's actually an interesting question of where these pilots will come from and how we incentivize them. And our forecasts show that by 2027, 2030, if this industry takes off, we will need about 50,000 pilots just for this urban air mobility space. And the value proposition for them is an interesting one because you're telling them, listen, we want you to fly these. But at the same time, as an industry, our number one priority is to get rid of you, to get rid of you, to automate this so that we can bring down the cost. And so if you think about the NPV of a pilot career, you invest about $100,000 up front to get your pilot's license. You spend two years of your life doing that. You know, you have to recoup that afterwards. And if you really only think about a five or 10-year career until you get automated away, it's a hard pitch to make. And so it's a very interesting question for the industry on how to resolve it. And the, the other thing I'd say, and we are very close to being able to master the technology that's required for 100% safe autonomous flight. 99 point something percent of the time, everything goes flawlessly. That said, you see in your day-to-day -day life that technology fails. And whether that's having to reboot your computer or your phone, yep. you know, this happens on airplanes today, that sometimes you need to reboot a system and have human intervention. And not surprisingly, the tolerance for technology failures in unmanned flight will be zero. Yeah. And so the question in a lot of people's minds is, all right, if we're 99 point something percent of the way there, how far are we from 100? Yeah. And that could be very close and it could be very, very far. And this is the same discussion that happens with autonomous vehicles, right? What standard do we hold the systems? Do we hold them to the standard of perfection or do we hold them to a human standard, which is a long way from, you know, even 99.99%. You, you raise an interesting point there because the human standard is also not 100%, right? Yeah. I mean, in a lot of cases, you would argue, you know, the human introduces a certain amount of risk as well because there's human failure, right? And, and human error. And so I think a lot of it is public perception issue. Right? And how do we deal with you know, the fact that we're expecting 100% safety from aviation, but yet we're totally fine getting in a car and taking a significant risk on our way to the airport in the car? Yeah. It's cultural, societal, but also regulatory, and regulators will respond to politicians who respond to society. So 
what about supersonic? Is there a future? Is it going to come back? Many people my age uh, have had a chance to fly on Concorde when it was operating, and it was a, a wonderful experience. And there are a couple of companies that have very credible paths from a technology standpoint to reintroduce supersonic aircraft, in some cases, to the business and corporate market. That said, I do think that there are some real challenges. First and foremost, they will not be more fuel efficient. And I think that in a world where we become very focused on carbon footprint at an individual level as well as a collective level, that may impede the success of these models. I think second, there is a time channel problem with supersonic flight that I think many underestimate. And what I mean by that is nobody wants to arrive at 2 o'clock in the morning and nobody wants to leave at 2 o'clock in the morning. And so when you look at the rational departure and arrival time slots in many city pairs, Supersonic does wonderful things for you in some city pairs and does nothing for you in others. Interesting. And so Concorde, for instance, was quite popular between London and Paris and New York, and it was less popular in the other direction because it left in the morning and arrived in the early evening. And so you spent a day on an airplane, whereas the alternative would be to spend a full day in New York, go to sleep in a first-class seat or a business-class seat, because if you were on Concorde, that's probably your alternative wake up in Europe and have a productive day on the other end. And so that said, I suspect we will see some activity in this space at small scale. Let's just finish with some tips. You are both pilots and frequent travelers. I'm sure you get asked this at dinner parties. So here's the dinner party question. I fly. What should I do? What should I not do? Alex. Look, my simple answer is uh, unless you really have to, don't eat on planes. Nothing against the food, it's fine, but uh, in many cases, the flight is relatively short. If you looked at the east coast of the US to Europe, you have at best six and a half hours in the air. You have a big time zone change ahead of you. Getting even a few hours sleep is really helpful. And um, you know, an hour and a half worth of dinner, uh, or whether you're in economy or business, uh, takes away a significant portion of your sleeping time. Not to mention the fact that the airplane is a pressurized environment and without getting into overly biotechnical details, your body doesn't do a particularly good job of digesting food at altitude. Yeah, so rest, basically put your head down, get some rest, don't eat. Uh, Robin, any tips? Well, I still eat on airplanes, so I, I don't quite agree with that one. I think getting smart on the, on the stress-free way through the airport and through the environment is, is really where I spend my time thinking about, and that's the tip I give people think about which security checkpoint you do. Is there a way for you to get fast track through that by registering for a program or by being a frequent flyer? Understanding where the gate layout is, you know, what are the right places to refresh or the washrooms in the area, etc. So a little, a little bit of pre-planning of the airport experience. A little bit of pre-planning of the airport experience, yeah, absolutely. And look, I think on the aircraft itself, I would argue, you know, get a window seat if you can, because you can lean against the window. And, uh, you know, people always argue, it's like, you know, the person who's in the aisle seat has all the power because they can get up whenever they want. Well, reality is, if you're in the window seat, you can also get up whenever you want, and you can actually make the other people get up at the same time. And so that whole aisle argument for me doesn't count. I mean, for yeah. me, it's a window seat. One other that might surprise you is pack lightly. And, uh, and that is not only simplifies your life and makes dragging bags through the airport simpler, um, but it also reduces your carbon footprint. If you choose not to fly, at least in the short term, that seat will probably be filled by someone else and certainly the plane will go. But every kilogram that you remove from your personal luggage reduces the fuel burn for the aircraft. And so I feel good about that. It also makes my life simpler. One other I would add is uh, bring a pillow. 
even on shorter flights, being able to rest your head on something other than just a headrest is, is kind of nice. And so I always carry a small pillow with me. And then I carry a pair of uh, somewhat nicer eye shades than you would be given for free, because that just makes a big difference to be able to shut out the light and get a little bit of quiet time. Yeah. One key one for me is knowing when not to sleep. The big challenge of long haul travel, of course, is managing jet lag. And that is as much a question of learning how to sleep as it is knowing when not to sleep. And so a perfect example would be a typical flight from the east coast of the United States to Asia would leave in the middle of the day, let's say noon, and arrive in Asia late in the afternoon, which by the way would be early in the morning on your body time. And if I look around the airplane in most cases, I would see people asleep for the last five hours of that flight. And I know from experience that those people will end up tossing and turning in their hotel bed that night, unable to go to sleep again. And that sets a pattern throughout the subsequent days of being groggy in the day, probably having to resort to taking a nap, not being able to sleep at night. And so keeping yourself awake so that you can shock yourself into the next time zone is an important discipline in managing jet lag. Be friendly to airport and airline employees. Uh, there are a lot of things that go wrong in the airline industry, and the vast majority of them are not the fault of the flight attendant or gate agent that you're speaking to. And taking the time to smile and acknowledge that it's not their fault and have a little human contact makes their day better, it makes your day better, and again, creates that positive loop that we were talking about. I had a flight attendant come up to me not long ago to thank me for taking my headsets off of my head when she came to ask me a question. And you'd think that would be a common courtesy. It's certainly something I'd ask my kids to do, but apparently um, that's not something that is often done. And those little things make a difference. Yeah. All right, so we are out of time for today, uh, but Robin and Alex, thank you so much for joining. And that was fascinating. Oh, Great. Thank you for the time. We'll see you all in an airport someplace. Yeah, right. <laughs> And as always, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast. Please do jet over to mckinsey.com to find more research on aviation, transportation, sustainability, and more. Alternatively, download the excellent McKinsey Insights app, which is available for Apple and Android devices. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.